Father, we thank you for who you are, that you are indeed good and gracious. If you were not, Lord, we would have no hope of drawing near to you. We would have no hope of glory, hope of heaven, hope of being able to spend the rest of eternity serving you in your presence, Lord, because we understand from your word that we are sinners, that we are rebels, Lord, that we fall infinitely short of your glory, and what we have earned is in fact your wrath, Lord, but because you are good and because you are gracious, you have provided salvation for us. And you haven't done it because you are needy and you just need company for all of eternity. No, we just sang that you are the king in need of nothing. You don't need anything. Lord, you don't need anyone to complete you. Rather, we need you to complete us. And purely out of your grace, you have drawn us to yourself through your son, sending your son to become a man, to live a righteous life in our place, to die an atoning death for our sin in our place and to rise up from the grave on our behalf so that he could take us to be with you forever. Lord, we stand in awe of who you are. We know we don't understand as we ought. We love you and yet we know we don't love you as we ought. And so we just pray that you would be at work in our hearts even this morning as we come to your word, that your spirit would take the sword of your word and prune us, cutting out what should not be there, and splicing in what should be there, greater love for you, greater devotion to you, more gratitude to you for what you've done for us. Lord, please continue to shape us and to fashion us into the image of your Son, and we thank you for the good work you have begun in us and that you will finish it. And Lord, we can't wait for that day. Um, but Lord, make us attentive now to your word, we pray in, G in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we are in Hebrews chapter 12 again this morning, and we're looking at verses 18 through 24. And I'll read that passage for us. Chapter 12, starting in verse 18, says, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such, that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Before we start looking more closely at this passage, I want to read a couple of very short parables from the Lord Jesus. And these parables are found in Matthew chapter 13 and in verses 44 through 46. 
Matthew 13, verse 44, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Last time we were together, we finished up considering the example of Esau. Esau was, just to remind us, the firstborn son of Isaac. And we found in verses 14 through 17 that Esau, being firstborn, he possessed the birthright. But he thought so little of his birthright that when he came home from the field one day, famished, he was willing to sell that birthright to his brother Jacob for one bowl of stew. And I want you to keep in mind those parables that we read about Jesus. And I want you to think of Esau and take Esau and insert him into those situations in those parables and think about how those, uh, those stories would have played out in Esau's case. If Esau was there and he was that man, who stumbled upon that treasure in the field, what would he have done? Well, he would have just kept walking, too highly valuing his earthly possessions to bother selling it all to get that treasure. Or he would be a man who, uh, walking through the marketplace, saw that pearl of great value, but his appraisal of that pearl was so far off that he just continued his search looking for more pearls, not knowing that he would never find a pearl like that ever again. Esau devalued what was of great value. This is what Esau was doing when he sold his birthright. He, he was a man who did not care for the things of God. And this event in the life of Esau, it got us thinking about ourselves, about the danger that comes with beginning to think so little about Jesus that we begin to become more and more willing to trade him for infinitely lesser things. And the preacher, he wants these believers whom he's writing to, to pursue this line of thought even further. He doesn't want to just leave off considering this yet. So this is what we come to in verses 18 through 24. And in order to better understand these verses, we need to remind ourselves of the situation that these believers found themselves in. Do we, do we remember historically what these believers were facing? They were Jews who had converted to Christianity, to following Christ. But in their day, in the empire of Rome, Christianity had become outlawed. And so they would be persecuted for following Jesus. But at the same time, the life that they had to some degree left behind, Judaism, the law of Moses, that was still okay. So they could safely practice living under the old covenant and escape persecution. So they're facing a fork in the road, and they're being tempted to forsake Jesus by returning to Judaism, to the law of Moses, to the old covenant, in order to escape that persecution. And the preacher, in these verses, he's trying to get them to see how foolish of a decision that would be. And so he figuratively speaks of 
the Old Covenant as Mount Sinai, as we'll see, while speaking of the New Covenant as Mount Zion. He's picturing these two different covenants as two different mountains in order to graphically show these believers the insanity of ever turning away from Jesus. These Hebrew believers, they had become so dull of hearing. Remember, we saw that in chapter 5. He says, you've become dull of hearing. You don't understand anymore. They'd become so desensitized to the glory of Christ and the glory of their salvation that they had begun to treat Jesus lightly. They had begun to resemble Esau and how he devalued his birthright. And the preacher, he wants to show them just what kind of trade they would be making if they were to abandon Jesus in order to go back to the law of Moses, simply to preserve their earthly lives. He wants them to see the infinite value of what they have come to possess in Christ. He does this first by telling them what they have not received in Jesus. He first shows them what they have not received when they came to Jesus. We see these in verses 18 through 21. Let's read those again. He says to these believers, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. The preacher, he reminds these folks of a portion of the history of their people that they would have known very well. And we know this story well also. When the Israelites, when they were delivered from their slavery in the land of Egypt, God brought them through the Red Sea to a mountain, and that was Mount Sinai. And at that place, God met with his people. He came down upon that mountain and he instituted a covenant with his people, declaring his righteous law to them, the Ten Commandments. And the preacher refers to this mountain, Mount Sinai, in verse 18, he refers to it as a mountain that can be touched. A mountain that can be touched, that is, an earthly mountain, as opposed to a heavenly mountain, a mountain that you could actually touch. Think about what God did in making this covenant with this people. He didn't take the people, catch them up into heaven, and make a covenant with them in heaven. Instead, he came down to them on the earth at Mount Sinai, and he made a covenant with them on earth. They came to a mountain that can be touched. Under the old covenant, the people had come to Mount Sinai. But again, this is not the mountain that these Hebrew believers have come to. He's saying that this is not what you've come to. So how does the preacher go on to describe what the Israelites came to? Not these believers, but the Israelites way back when. When they came to Mount Sinai, what did they come to? Well, he says in verse 18, they came to a blazing fire and to darkness and to gloom and to whirlwind 
That's what they came to. I want you to picture yourself in their sandals. And if you had seen this, you'd come to this mountain and you saw what they saw. What do you think you would feel? What do you think they felt? Any ideas? Fear, terror, exactly, intense fear. And not only that, but God's descent onto this mountain was accompanied by what? Verse 19, the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that they begged that no further word be spoken to them. They heard the deafening blast of a heavenly trumpet sound and the audible thundering voice of God himself as he spoke the Ten Commandments to them. And if you want to read all about that, just go to Exodus chapter 19 and verse 20. It's, it's quite, uh, quite dramatic what happened there. Now when these people saw what they saw and when they heard what they heard, how did they respond? Did they say, wow, that was really cool, let's do that again? No, they said, Moses, please ask God not to talk to us anymore or else we die. That's how they responded. They begged, the verse says. And the preacher, he says in verse 20, he gives the reason why they begged for God not to speak to them in that way anymore. He says, for they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. They begged because they were commanded not to touch the mountain, not to try to break through the cloud in order to catch a glimpse of God. They were commanded to not even let an innocent animal set one hoof upon that mountain or they'd have to stone it to death. Now when you think of this command that they received, what does this command imply about who God is? It implies that he is holy. And what does this command imply about the people, Israel? It implies that they are sinful, thoroughly sinful. That's why they they must not set foot on that mountain. And what happens when an infinitely holy God comes into contact with a thoroughly sinful people. Death happens. And at Mount Sinai, sinful Israel had just had an encounter with the holy God. And they were terrified for their lives. And even Moses felt this intense fear. Verse 21, so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. There's actually a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 19 when Moses was recounting to the people what happened at Mount Sinai during the golden calf incident. When Moses went up in that mountain for 40 days and the people, they made a golden calf and they started to worship an idol and Moses comes down and he sees what they did. Moses said he was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure which the Lord was wrathful against the people with in order to destroy them. Moses was afraid as well. Now what does all this tell us about the Old Covenant? The preacher is speaking of Mount Sinai in reference to the Old Covenant. 
What does all of this tell us about that covenant? What awaits someone who tries to get right with God on the basis of obeying his law? Yeah, you can't do it. It tells us that there's only condemnation, only wrath to be found under that old covenant. And the preacher is saying to these believers that to forsake Jesus in order to go back to that old covenant is simply to place oneself back underneath the wrath of the holy God. They've actually been saved from Mount Sinai. They've been saved from the wrath of God that would be upon them if they were to try to draw near to God through the old covenant. But now they're considering going back to where they had been saved from. And the preacher is trying to get them to understand what sense does that make? Now what about us, you and me? Because most of us, we're not being tempted to leave Jesus in order to go back to the old covenant. I notice many of you are still trimming the corners of your beards. You're not trying to go back. You probably enjoyed pork or bacon this morning. This is not something we are being tempted to go back to. But we are being tempted to leave Jesus in order to pursue other things. Pressures often come upon us in life that expose the idols in our hearts. For these Hebrews, what was the pressure they were facing? It was persecution. And persecution had exposed the fact that these believers had begun to worship not Jesus, but their physical safety. And when following Jesus began to get in the way of their physical safety, they were thinking of pursuing their physical safety instead of pursuing Jesus. That is why they were considering returning to the old covenant. But the question for you and me is what is following Jesus getting in the way of for you? Is Jesus getting in the way of your desire for safety? For your desire for comfort, your desire for financial security, your desire for physical pleasure with someone that you are not married to, your desire for adventure, your desire for the approval of men. Whatever it is, if you are viewing Jesus as an obstacle to what you really want, to what will really satisfy you, to what will really make you content, then you need to understand from the word of God that you are an idolater and you need to repent. Jesus is not someone we are to view as getting in the way of. He is to be our all in all. Everything else gets in the way of us following him. He's not the obstacle. He needs to be our all in all. That treasure hidden in a field, the pearl of great price. And just as physical safety under the Old Covenant could not save these Hebrews, these Hebrew believers from the wrath of God, so your idols, and wherever they may take you, cannot save you from the wrath of God. And you are deceiving yourself if you think that you can chase your idols and at the same time escape the wrath of God, escape what we are reading about here in verses 18 to 21. We come to this second mountain, 
that if we've come to Christ, this is actually what we've come to. And sin is blinding us, helping us, uh, turning us away from recognizing that this is what we've come to. This is the great blessing we have received in the Lord Jesus. Here, the preacher, he reminds these believers of what they've gained when they received salvation through faith in Christ. He's reminding them of the type of, quote-unquote, mountain they had approached, the place to which God had graciously brought them in Christ. Verse 22, he says, But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion, that was the place that God had chosen for his name to dwell among his people forever. Historically, the city of Jerusalem was there. The temple was there. And in the future, we've read about it already, Mount Zion will be the capital of the entire universe on the new earth for all of eternity. And because of this Mount Zion, it came to be another name for heaven, the dwelling place of God. And we see that in how the preacher goes on to describe this place. He says, you as believers in Jesus Christ have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The apostle John, he received a vision of this heavenly city. If you were to turn to Revelation 21 and verses 10 through 11, the apostle John, he says this, he said, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And then later on in the chapter, verse 22, John goes on to say, I saw no temple in it, that is in this city that's come down out of heaven, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. This is what these believers have come to in Christ. And I don't want you to miss the difference here. Under the old covenant, God came to the people on earth, and he set up copies of heavenly things that the people could use to worship him. And even in the copies themselves, like the tabernacle, there was a part of it that they could not enter because of their sin. They couldn't even enter the copy of the place. But here, under the new covenant, God has brought his people into heaven itself, into his presence, to worship him there. And we see this worship taking place in this passage. He goes on in verse 22 to say that these believers have come to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This phrase, general assembly, it means a festive gathering. And it's probably best to seeing it 
connected to the phrase myriads of angels, that there's an assembly, a festive gathering of angels crowded around the throne of God, worshiping God, presenting themselves to serve the living God. And it's not only angels there. He goes on to say that the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, that they are there as well. The church, the congregation of God's people, believers. We see a scene like this in Revelation chapter 7. If you want to turn there, chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, we see a heavenly worship scene going on that is very similar to what the preacher is describing. Verse 9, again, the Apostle John, he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is what we've come to as believers. This is what awaits us. This is our destiny This is what these Hebrew believers had been brought to. This is what you and I as believers in Christ have been brought to. I just want to make note of how he describes this church, this gathering, this congregation of believers. This church is of a certain quality. He says, the church of the firstborn. The church of the firstborn. Now, firstborn here, it's actually not a direct reference to Jesus. Because in the Greek, this word is in the plural. It's talking about multiple people being described as firstborn. It could be translated church of the firstborn ones. This is a reference to believers. All believers, the sons and the daughters of God, possess the status of firstborn. How can that be? Well, it's because by faith we're united to who? To Jesus. Who is Jesus? What does Colossians say about Jesus? He's the firstborn of all creation. And we've been so united to him by faith that we share the status of firstborn among each other. We're all firstborn. We possess the privileges and the blessings that come with having the birthright. And these people that we have joined and that we will join in heaven, we are those who have been enrolled in heaven. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is what we've come to. Verse 23 goes on to say what we've come to in Christ. We've come to who? God, the judge of all. Notice how verses 18 through 21, speaking of coming to this mountain, it never says we've come to God. God revealed himself on Mount Sinai. How? 
shrouded in fire and smoke. God was holding the people at arm's length, if you will, because of their sin. They couldn't go down that mountain. But here, at Mount Zion, the people are able to come right up to God. The preacher, he goes on to say that these Hebrew believers have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. When one of God's people dies, what happens to their spirit? It goes immediately into the presence of God. And that person's spirit is able to dwell in God's presence. Why? Because that person has been declared righteous by God and made perfect, made fit to dwell in his very presence. The people at Mount Sinai, they could not set one foot onto that mountain. They could not get anywhere near God's presence because they were not righteous. They were not made perfect. But it's not so at Mount Zion, which is what you and I have come to through faith in Christ. Now, how can this be? What is, what is it that makes the difference between Sinai and Zion? How come at Sinai I can't set one foot upon that mountain, but at Zion I can rush right into the very presence of God? How can that be? Well, verse 24 is the key. Under the new covenant, who have we come to? He says, and to Jesus. Who's Jesus? The mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So again, how is fire, darkness, and fear at Mount Sinai, how is that turned into cleansing light and joy at Mount Zion? Well, it's because these believers have come to Jesus. Jesus had instituted a new covenant that provided for the forgiveness of the sins of his people. It's because of what Jesus accomplished at another mount, the Mount of Crucifixion, Calvary. On that mount, he shed his blood as a substitutionary sacrifice for his people. He took the wrath that we deserve to experience, the wrath that we see in 18 through 21. He took all of that upon himself in the place of his people so that we could gain what he had earned by his righteous life, access into the very presence of God. If you've come to Christ, you are going to dwell in the midst of the searing light of God's holiness forever. And he also mentions this blood that Jesus shed as speaking better than the blood of Abel. What is that all about? Well, who shed Abel's blood? His brother Cain. Cain murdered him. And remember back in Genesis 4, God told Cain, your brother's blood is doing what? Crying out to me from the ground. It suggests that Abel's blood had cried out for justice. Justice upon the one who murdered him. But what does Jesus' blood cry out for on behalf of his people? Jesus' blood cries out to God for his mercy and for his grace to be upon all his people. Because Jesus took his people's sins upon himself. 
He took the wrath of God, the fire, the darkness, the gloom, the whirlwind. He took it upon his own body on the cross. The preacher is reminding these believers of what they possess in Christ. That when they put their faith in Christ, they came not to Sinai, but to Zion. And do they realize what they have in the person of Jesus Christ? The fact that they're even considering leaving Christ shows that they do not understand what they have in him. Otherwise, they would not even dream of ever leaving him. They are the firstborn children of the living God to abandon Jesus, to sell their birthright, simply to preserve their earthly life, to go back to the old covenant. The preacher is telling them, that's insane. But that's what sin does. Sin deceives us. Sin tells us that what God has provided us in Jesus really isn't all that great. And that what sin can offer, that is what really satisfies. That is what can really bring you contentment and lasting pleasure and fulfillment. That's the same lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden. Eve was standing in the middle of paradise itself. God had given her and Adam all the trees with all the fruit which tastes probably far better than anything you've ever tasted in your entire life. She had all of that. There was just one tree he commanded them not to eat from. And what did the snake come along to say? He's saying, no, God's actually withholding from you what will really satisfy you. She's standing in the middle of paradise. She's experiencing unbroken fellowship with her creator. But the snake, Satan, he says, no, there's something more, something better for you. What a lie. Do we realize what we possess in Jesus? That if you have turned from your sin and you've put your trust in Christ, you are a citizen of his kingdom. You are destined to reign under the Lord Jesus over all the earth for all eternity serving your king of kings forever with joy inexpressible. And the preacher is telling these believers and he's telling you and me, don't trade all of that for the poisoned cup of sin. Nothing is worth choosing over the Lord Jesus. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure hidden in the field that a man sold everything he had in order to possess. Instead, we need to forsake all in order to follow Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we pray what our Lord Jesus taught us to pray. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, sin has a way of distorting our view of reality has a way of blunting the glory that we possess in Christ and enticing us by lying to us and telling us that, that God, you actually hate us, you're withholding things from us, and that the things that you're withholding are actually the things that will really satisfy us. 
when actually you are withholding the things that will kill us, that will send us to hell. You've given us everything in Christ. We are complete in him. You have showered us with blessing and with eternal joy. And it's only sin that, that makes us lose sight of that. Help us, Lord, to turn from sin. Help us to constantly be fixing our eyes on Jesus. And Lord, if anyone is here who does not know Christ or who is caught in living in sin, forsaking Christ for what they can get in this world, Lord, may you be at work in their hearts, opening their blind eyes to see the truth of their need for the Savior and about how he alone can fully satisfy them because he alone is their God and they must worship him alone as God. Lord, help us all with that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.